And this week we are joined by Rabbi Adam Zagoya Moffat, who is the rabbi of St. Albans Masorti Synagogue in the UK. He has been ordained at JTS in New York, where he also received an MA in Jewish thought, studying the political philosophy of Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag. He is originally from the United States and has also co-edited the first Hebrew-English egalitarian Sephardi Sidor and runs the independent publisher Izun Books. A huge welcome to you, Rabbi Adam, and we very much look forward to exploring with you, Vaera. Thank you, Simon. I got quite lucky, I think, in being asked to think about Vaera because of the parashiot, certainly in Exodus, the beginning has a lot more to teach us and to offer us. And there's a lot to say about pretty much every pasuk in this section of the Torah. And um, where I want to start is actually not the Torah at all, but uh, my reading list for the past year. I developed a few years ago the custom of putting together a list of all the books I read each year, mostly for my own sake, to prove to myself that I read more than I think I read. And it's been very productive. I really recommend it. When you look back at the year and you look back at all the different things that you may have read, even the ones you didn't finish, you can certainly appreciate sometimes how much work goes into reading. And one of the things, and looking back on my list as it's the last week of the year now and we're speaking, one of the things that I see on my list that I actually kind of forgot about, but at the time really struck me, was an unusual book called Ancient Egyptian Magic. And maybe not the book you expect to find on the rabbi's bookshelf, especially because the subtitle is A Hands-On Guide. And naturally, when I saw this in the bookshop, Ancient Egyptian Magic, A Hands-On Guide, it piqued my interest. And I think that's because so much of what we need to understand in order to understand Shemot is Egypt. And I think for many of us as Jews, we learn about the story as it's presented from the point of view of our own people. But we often fail to really appreciate the degree to which it really demonstrates a familiarity and intimacy with Egyptian culture. And nothing made this clearer to me than reading this book, Ancient Egyptian Magic. And in particular, this week in Vaera, we receive many wonderful little vignettes of the story that Moses and Aaron are engaging on as they prepare to leave the land of Egypt. We know how it ends. But if we imagine as readers that we don't, then we can tense and feel and experience the anxiety of whether or not it's going to work, whether or not Moses and Aaron are going to be able to actually pull off this incredible feat of representing God and getting the people out. And part of it, of course, relies very heavily on their use, Moses and Aaron's use of magic, and magic that would have been familiar to them. Now, I think in many ways, our literacy with Egypt as Jews is pretty misunderstood. In fact, when we look at the context behind a lot of what happens in Shemot, we see how much it is incredibly Egyptian as a discourse. The plagues, the 10 plagues that are coming and that we're reading about this week, they all correlate to attacks on particular Egyptian deities. They're all relevant to the religious environment of the time. Joseph, a couple weeks back when he's interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, is following methods which you can still find in archival resources of Egyptian dream interpretation. He's doing exactly what would be expected of him as an Egyptian. Even that key symbol in Vaera and elsewhere of God and Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart is actually very much tapping into Egyptian cultural reference points, in particular the belief that after you died, your heart would be placed on a scale 
and weighed against a feather, the feather of the goddess Ma'at. And if your heart was heavier than the feather, then you would be doomed to be eaten by this horrible beast that lived under the scale rather than inherit the underworld. So the harder and heavier your heart was, and note, of course, that in the Hebrew we do use the word kaved for referencing this hardening of the heart, the heavier it is, the more it weighs down, the less life you have in the world to come, which for a pharaoh would have been quite a curse. And all of these things reflecting that Egyptian context is actually quite critical for us as Jews to learn. And it is starting to change, I think, that we're feeling more comfortable understanding that context for ourselves. There's an amazing chumash that was started to be put out by Koren a couple of years ago, and they only put out the volume on Shemot, which includes all this context in archaeology and Egyptology and culture and language and history, and is meant for Jews to sit in shul and read about Egyptian deities. And I think that's wonderful. Because for me, However long it was this past year when I picked up ancient Egyptian magic, sometime in the summer, I think, after we had read Shemot, I remember reading it in shul, of all places, and thinking about how much actually understanding the magic system that the Egyptians used and related to helps us to understand in particular the story in today's parasha of the staffs and the serpents, of the showdown between Moses and Aaron and the Egyptian magicians. And it's actually really important in some way to get that context. The idea of magic in ancient Egypt, they called Cheka, was actually a lot more than just the kind of magic we imagine when we think of someone pulling a rabbit out of a hat or saying magic spells like the Aramaic abracadabra. The magic the Egyptians understood seems to have been a kind of power that permeated everything. And so the practitioners of that magic, who were the priests, were actually tapping into an understanding of nature, actually something that's probably not so different from what we might now call science, and how they understood their endeavor in manipulating these forces. And in fact, many of the aspects of our story, even if we zoom in for a moment on those two serpents and they're devouring each other and the staffs turning into serpents, is evocative of Egyptian practices at the time. Texts even older than the context of Shemot, all the way back to 1600 BCE, talk about how Egyptian priests who were trained in this doctrine of Cheka, of magic, are able to split bodies of water, something, of course, Moses will be able to do shortly. And very commonly, they would turn wax animals into real ones and then back again to demonstrate their proficiency with the magical arts. And actually, as a result, we can imagine the Torah in telling us the story is really playing with Egyptian practices and real Egyptian cultural moments. One of them is that actually the serpent, Apep, which symbolized chaos, was something that the priest would regularly carve out of wax, some kind of giant sea dragon, and then actually they would cast it down and break it into pieces to demonstrate through this kind of symbolic magic the power of the pharaohs to be order against chaos. And the language that we use in the parasha is obviously not accidental. The language of uh, tanin, to reference the snake, which of course can also be understood as a serpent or a dragon or some kind of beast type creature rather than the regular nachash. The language of the chartumim, which actually is an Egyptian word that's been translated into Hebrew that references priests. The language even in one of the key passages where it references them using something called a lahat, which is a very unusual Hebrew word. And those keen-eyed readers might recognize the only other place so far in the Torah that word is used is the whirling sword outside the Garden of Eden the flaming sword turning about in a circle with lahat. And actually, it seems when we look at the context that a lot of what we're talking about when we imagine Moses and Aaron going to confront 
Pharaoh's magicians is not this showdown between Moses and Aaron representing a pure monotheism that we imagine ourselves believing versus the Egyptian priests representing this polytheistic, naturalistic worldview. The reality is that the fight they're having is within the context of Hekka and of magic and of Egyptian society and Egyptian symbols and imagery. So when, as it happens, Moses's and Aaron's serpents devour the priestly serpents of the Egyptians, it actually is evocative of that image of the serpent of chaos being destroyed. We see all sorts of evidence in archaeology of Egyptian priests grabbing serpents by the tail in order to demonstrate their power over chaos. And like snake charmers, when we see in many cultural depictions in the Near East. And actually, God tells Moses to do exactly that. In chapter 4, verse 4, God tells Moses to pick up the serpent by the tail to exemplify that power over chaos. Swallowing in these Egyptian rituals, eating something, imbibing something, was not understood as destruction, but actually a way of taking on the attributes of the thing that was being digested. And we get, if we put all these things together, if we get the imagery of the Egyptian priest defeating the snake of chaos, and we get the imagery of the way in which magic was understood, and the snake being held by its tail, and the sea dragon, and all of this, and we put it together, we start to actually get a better understanding of what's happening in this scene, is that for Moses and Aaron, they're making a statement to the Egyptians, by themselves as Egyptians, using Egyptian symbols, that chaos and order are about to be overturned. That normally the pharaoh is a representation of order defeating chaos, but actually a greater order is going to be imposed on them, and chaos is going to reign against them. And this kind of one-upmanship almost of being more pharaoh than pharaoh, being more Egyptian than the Egyptians, is something that for many of our rabbis and commentators makes them a bit uncomfortable. We like to think that somehow our ancestors in Egypt were just like us. They just happened to be regular ethical monotheistic Jews who just somehow found themselves in Egypt. The reality, of course, is they were thoroughly and completely Egyptians in many ways. And when they went to Pharaoh to respond, to represent the deity that had sent them, the God we understand to be the God behind the burning bush and the entire story of Genesis, Exodus, and beyond, they were doing so in a very Egyptian way. The Israelites' self-telling of themselves is maybe a little bit distorted to some degree, because we can't read this section and many other sections without imagining that these individuals, at least Moses and Aaron, but perhaps the Torah as a whole and others, really did understand what Egyptian priests believed and did and how they understood themselves and how they engaged in the religious practices of the time. And I think it should make us question a little bit how it is that we understand the parasha, how we understand Moses and Aaron's role, and actually how we understand ancient Egypt. It might not be as crazy as it seems that I actually picked up a book called Ancient Egyptian Magic and put it on my reading list, me a rabbi, because in some way, reading through this book, and I didn't try anything, I promise you, but reading through it and seeing the practices and understanding what it is that was so common and fluent to the Egyptians, you start to recognize a lot of what happens in Exodus. And it gives us a much better depth to understanding our ancestors' journey out of Egypt when we understand how much they were actually not foreigners to some extent, but thoroughly and completely Egyptian and very conversant in the imagery of it. So I think that's one of the key things as we enter Exodus for us to understand and to look at is actually how Egyptian a lot of these stories are, which is undervalued. At least that's what I found. 
thank you for introducing us to such an interesting take. And you're taken, as was Freud, in Moses and monotheism by the context of Egypt. Incidentally, I know you say it's not Jewish, but actually, I think it's probably very Jewish that they were more Egyptian than the Egyptians, as Jews have shown throughout thousands of years of history of acculturating so well in the environments in which they have found themselves, and yet at the same time, being able to twist things in a way which does make sense to them. I mean, back to Moses and monotheism, the notion of Moses's background a very familiar theme in other literatures, mm. although the inverse there we see as happening, as in he came from, inverted commas, slavery, but goes to the royal elite, as opposed to the other way around, as there yeah. are in, in other literatures and, and so on. I just really wonder, with those things in mind, obviously it certainly changes our experience at a Seder table and maybe notions of identity. What do we do with that? You're absolutely right. I think that there is quite a long history of reconsidering who Moses was. I think it definitely taps into many stories of religious heroes, we might call them in other cultures, to imagine the prince who abandons the palace, the stories about the Buddha being a wealthy prince who actually saw the suffering outside of the palace and decided to leave it, parallels very closely what Moses experienced. And it's critical that we understand that Moses, although he leads the Israelites, is not like them in some way. He is thoroughly and always an Egyptian through and through. There's amazing ways in which the Midrash tries to invent what happened during the years that Moses wasn't in Egypt. Because, of course, if we read the chronology, literally, he disappeared for a while. There's a great Midrash where he went conducting wars of national liberation in other countries and ruled as king of Cush for a while and then eventually came back to help the people in Egypt, the Israelites who were his genetic, if not cultural relatives, to get out themselves. Freud's take is an interesting one. In terms of what we do, I think probably the first step is not to believe Freud too much. But it is telling that he was so fascinated with the character of Moses, because we can psychoanalyze him too. And we can imagine that Freud, later in his life, became very interested in Judaism as a psychological formulation, and he famously had a copy of the Zohar on his desk, which he couldn't read. He had a copy of translation to German. Someone asked him about once, and he said, well, it's full of gold, but I don't know how to mine it. And he himself had this relationship of tension with Judaism. I think he wanted to believe that Moses was the same in some way, just as Freud was leading the Jews into a new, perhaps psychological foundation. Moses was someone who was in two worlds at once, thoroughly, thoroughly Egyptian, but choosing to forsake his birthright as an adopted son of Pharaoh for the sake of the people that he properly belonged to. So I don't think it's bad if we reappraise Moses, if we reappraise the Seder. Maybe that's what's motivating the rabbi's unease about holding Moses up as too much of a hero. You always hear people say, why isn't Moses mentioned in the Seder? Why don't we talk about Moses more? And the explanation that's typically given is that the rabbis were nervous that people would start to worship Moses as more than just a teacher. And they emphasize it by calling him Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, our rabbi, which he wasn't. But maybe it's not so bad to actually reconsider what role Moses does play and who he is. What do we imagine him to be when we imagine him? Often, I think we get it quite wrong. And that does matter. The Children's Illustrated Bible version 
of the Torah is the biggest thing standing in our way of accurate understanding of the stories that make up our tradition. That's true today, and I think that's true for most Jews who live in Christian countries. And when they look at our own text, they don't look at it through their own eyes. We're always, as you say, very good at acculturating and acclimatizing to the people around who we live. And I find that many Jews now look at Judaism through Christian eyes, just as Jews then perhaps looked at Judaism through Egyptian eyes. Who was God to them? God was an Egyptian entity, maybe a singular one, maybe a monotheistic one, maybe one, as Freud suggested, that was a reminder of Akhenaten's failed religious revolution, but an Egyptian one. And I think we have to fight against that as we did then and as we do now, just pushing on our perceptions of what do we think is happening? What do we imagine happening when we read the Torah? And looking at the context of Egypt, I don't know that I'm right or that it matters that much, whether it was this or that, but I know that it matters that it challenges what we think when we often imagine it. I wonder what you might think it says for leadership that the leader comes from having so much external influence from outside and what that might mean for leadership today, as I think you're kind of pushing in the direction of that we need to expand our horizons as we engage with our sources. Yeah. I mean, why was Moses chosen? Why did God pick Moses, of all people, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? Aaron clearly was someone who God came to have an affection for. So too Miriam and many other people, not only Moses's family members. And yet, it's Moses who's picked. And I think that it does tell us something about leadership, that actually Moses, perhaps counterintuitively, someone who is completely Egyptian, who has an Egyptian name, who grows up in an Egyptian family, who presumably speaks Egyptian as his first language, is the best person to respond to and debate with and fight against Egypt. I think there's something in that for us understanding today, that sometimes there's a value in leadership when we can get an outside perspective when we can bring people in who are willing to look at it or understand the point of view of another predominantly majority society around us and go, yeah, this is what they mean, but here's what we should do in response. Moses translates Egyptianness for the Israelites. He's able to communicate with them in a language that is close enough to what they know, but is also close enough to his conception of who God would be. You have to assume that when Moses first encountered God, he saw God through the lens of his own Egyptian upbringing, whether he understood that to be Atum or Aten or any other number of deities. It probably took some time for him to come across this idea that maybe there's no distinction. Maybe they're all the same thing. Maybe there's only one being who's speaking. And his confusion and frustration and anger at God is perhaps a bit more understandable when you understand how foreign it was to him. I think the lesson there is that the best leader is the one who's had to learn, necessarily, not the one for whom it's natural, for whom it's always been obvious what the truth is and can thus say, I know what the truth is, follow me there. Some way Moses makes a better leader because he goes, yeah, I also have figured it out. I also have had to transition and learn and grow and develop and change my views. And so I can show you how to do that. Good leaders should be tour guides more than anything else to be able to point the stops out along the way and gesture at the path ahead, but not necessarily marching on ahead, leaving everyone in the dust. Moses is a great tour guide for the Israelites to say, 
we are Egyptians now, but we're becoming this. Let me show you how that works. Because he does it himself. He experiences that alienation and that struggle himself. And that makes him better able to communicate it to everyone else. I wonder if you might share from this book and your own thinking, the encounter with God in the book of Exodus and perhaps beyond and how Egyptian thinking or otherwise helps to inform notions of the ultimate or how we encounter it's, God it's through great, the Bible. It's a great question because that's one of the places where when reading more about Egyptian religion, I saw a certain sad irony with what we read about in Shemot. Because for the Egyptians, the priests were the ones who encountered the god. The god mostly remained, the god of course being an idol, mostly remained in an Aron, in some kind of cupboard inside a temple, never seeing the light. And only the priests could encounter the god. And the priests, as a result, were the intermediaries for everyone else. And that was very hierarchical and very essential to Egyptian society is the role the priests played in being the intercedents for the god and the ones who represented the god's wishes, including through their use of magic. One of Moses' big agendas must have been to try and change that, to try and say, actually, I'm not going to be the only one who encounters god. I was the first one, perhaps. I met god at this bush, very unlikely place, very un-Egyptian place. But I don't want to be the only one. I'm going to bring you to a place where all of us can get close to God. We're all going to have the opportunity to hear and to see and to speak all at once. That would have been incredibly radical and very un-Egyptian idea, which I imagine Moses himself would have had to take some time to get comfortable with. And it's a beautiful idea. And yet, what happens when they actually get to the moment where they're standing at the foot of the mountain and they're all ready for this democratic revolution and revelation, everybody goes, yeah, uh, we're going to stay here and uh, you go and do it, Moses. We don't want to do it. You do it. And he does. At the end of the day, Moses, the Egyptian, ends up encountering God exactly like the Egyptian priests he fought against. He goes by himself. He sees God's face. He speaks to God and he has to come back and tell them what he saw. And there's, um, I don't know, I have a good sense and a good affection for tragedy. And I think there's a real tragedy there of an attempt to try and change the system, an attempt to challenge that on Moses' part, which actually in the end doesn't work. The people are still too Egyptian, perhaps. They're still too focused on the priest to be their intercedent. And Moses ends up having to do exactly what he wanted to avoid. And maybe we're not doomed, perhaps, to always fall into the same trap that our ancestors did of relying on someone else, of getting scared at the last minute and going, oh, well, you, you go and encounter God and tell me what it's like. Maybe it should, in fact, kind of enliven us to try and embrace the idea of revelation being everyone's possibility, prophecy being everyone's possession. Maybe there's some way in which it should encourage us to actually change that answer to Moses retroactively and say, yeah, we'll go with you and we'll find out what God is like. That's probably the only thing that we can do. And I think that's what Moses tried to do in the years that followed that moment, to try and create a system that would enable people to approach God directly, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a kingdom where everyone, every person is a priest. That's still the mission that we're working on. And I think there's still a lot more work to do. But maybe it starts by understanding more of the Egyptian priests that we fought against so that we can avoid the same mistakes that our ancestors did. And maybe 
recruit the leaders that we need to help us get to that place. Rabbi Adam, thank you so much for those wonderful, insightful thoughts and plenty of seeds also as we continue our journey in Shemot and do look forward to coming back to this time as we continue our journey. Thank you for joining us and we do look forward to welcoming you back again. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.